Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma. Uh, today, um, we have with us our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman, as we visit his doctor's bag. Hello, Dr. Woolman. There it is. My favorite medical bag. <laughs> yep, mine too. Inside the doctor's bag. There should be some kind of a fanfare or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> there should be some medical sounds that we have when that comes up. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your medical guide along with Christina today as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy in search of optimal health. And as Christina said, we're going inside the doctor's bag today, so we've got a couple of little topics to talk about. Uh, before we do, Christina, if people want to get in touch with us. If you want to get in touch with us or make a quest, have a question or a comment, be sure to do so simply by scrolling down on the screen and submitting it. Or if you are on um, an audio device where you're listening to this program now, at any time, even if it's a year later, two years later, you know, you can give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. And be sure to leave us your information um, to get back to you with any answers to your questions. Um, and we'll go from there. Okay? Thank you so much, Doc. Beautiful. Uh, this, I think we should start out by saying there's a slide alert for those of you who like to listen while you're uh, driving. There are a few slides we're going to show today uh, when we talk about uh, strokes. So they're interesting slides. So I recommend that you... This one, maybe take a look at the show. Yeah, um, actually, they're really great slides because it really helped me to understand this a lot more. <laughs> well, we'll see at the end. There's a test. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so a, f- a few things. Let's start out uh, with uh, Senate Bill 128. Remember we uh, talked uh, and had a show on the End of Life Option Act? Yes. And I've been uh, keeping you updated on that. Well... The End of Life Option Act was in the Senate. It went through all the committees, and it finally went to the Senate floor in California, and it passed. And this is the first time in California history that a bill like that has passed. Great. Yes. So Bravo. Now, so now we're like, we'll have basically the same rights as Oregon? Not at all. Oh. So now, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully at some point we will, but now it go, it's going through the process, and I'm trying to keep everyone updated to keep everyone involved in it. So the process now is just like in the federal government where we have uh, a House and a Senate. Mm-hmm. In California, we have a Senate and an Assembly. And so it passed the Senate, and now it's in the Assembly that's another group of people, and actually it's twice as many people. In California, I think we have about 40 senators and 80 assembly persons. So the same thing goes on uh, in the assembly. Just like in the Senate, it had to go through three committees. And as of today, actually, June 23rd, 19, uh, 2015, whoops, <laughs> the... Uh, bill is going into the Committee on Health. Once it passes the Committee on Health, it goes to the Judiciary Committee. When it passes the Judiciary Committee, hopefully, it will go to the Appropriations Committee. Once it passes and hopefully passes the Appropriations Committee, it goes to the Assembly floor. If the Assembly passes it, 
The assembly passes it. It goes to the governor to sign and put into law. But this is a critical time uh, <clears throat> because the assembly may not be as simple or as easy as the Senate was. So it's very important for people to get involved in this uh, and to write to your assembly people, get on lines, uh, look for SB 128, the End of Life Option Act, uh, and notify your assembly person, tell them you want this bill. Uh, we may have a, a place on one of our older websites uh, from the earlier show, and maybe we can put it on this one, to uh, get people to sign up and write to your assembly people saying that you want it. And so it, it goes on. I'm actually going to be meeting with uh, assembly person Das Williams with some of the people that we interviewed uh, in July, July 10th, we're going to his office to talk to him about this. So we're getting involved. And then we go to uh, September 11th is the final date. If it isn't voted on by September 11th, the bill dies. Mm. So everyone's mo- moving rather quickly on this one. Mm. Well, thank you for the update. So for us, it's about going online, letting our assembly person know that uh, we want this bill passed. Absolutely. And if you and if you live in a different state and you're watching this and your mm-hmm. state doesn't have a bill like this, maybe you need to start working with your uh, congressional leaders to get a bill like this going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time, as, as you and many of our listeners and viewers know, I don't really take sides on a lot of things. But I'm really taking a side on this one, and I think we need to move forward on this, and it will be great for all of us. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think we should all. I think we should all have it <laughs> everywhere. I agree. I agree. So we're working hard on it, and we will keep moving on it. Great. So that, that's all for our news update. <laughs> <laughs> I I decided to start a new. I'm moving on to topic two, and I decided to start a new. Um, segment of the show when we go inside the doctor's bag. I don't know if I'll do it all the time and we'll see how it works out today, but it's about busting medical myths. Ah. And Christina, this is going to be important for you because I'm trying to think of a name and usually come, you usually come up with pretty good names for these things. So I, I came do. up, <laughs> yeah, we've had a couple of times where I thought of a good name and you came up with, I think one of the spa uh, sessions inside the doctor's bag you came up with. So I'm going to throw this out to you. I've thought of a couple of ideas. Magical mythical tour. Okay. Myth takes and myth information. So mm. what I'm going to do is try and bust a couple of myths here in medicine and uh, see how that takes off. And so if you think of a good name for this uh, segment of the show, we'll start using that. <laughs> okay, sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So let's look at a couple of myths. And after we do this, then we'll talk about uh, strokes, the main uh, topic for today's Inside the Doctor's Bag. Uh, first myth, if you read in poor lighting or sit too close to the TV, you'll develop eye problems. It's a myth. And don't tell my son that, please. No. Well, this is, <laughs> Just no, that's. I think that's the very important part of this whole thing about the myths. I think a lot of times it's basically myths were designed to teach children what the parents wanted them to do, 
and they struck fear into their little hearts and minds and souls. Oh, it doesn't work anyways. (laughs) So the first myth is that uh, poor lighting or sitting too close to a TV does not actually cause eye problems. It might cause an eye strain for a little while or you might get tired, but it doesn't actually cause problems. The eye is too complex for that. Interesting. Yeah, and in fact, if it were the opposite, if you sat further away or with brighter lighting, it maybe you would think that that would improve your eyes. And it doesn't necessarily do that either. You know, mm. the eyes have lots of things going on in them and that and it's not based on uh how the lighting and the how close you are to an object. Although, I would say that there are certain lights that you shouldn't look into, certainly sunlight or laser light. Those are important. Mm-hmm. But that's our first myth. Well, okay, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. So, so, for example, does that include when you're saying, you know, too close to a television or something like that? What about if they're reading a book or writing or anything like that and they're really close to their page? If they're really close to the page, it's because they probably already have an eye problem. Okay. And- so, it, by moving closer... What the the myth is, is that if you sit too close or in poor lighting, Mm -hmm. it will hurt your eyes and damage them. And that's the key here. It's not going to hurt your eyes or damage them. There are other things that will damage them, but Mm -hmm. not that. Mm -hmm. So if if you're sitting close to a book while you're reading it, you may need to go to the eye doctor to see if there's already something going on, and you may need uh, glasses. Hmm. Okay. All right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, what do you think? No, it's it's interesting because I see so many kids uh, in school, whether they have their glasses on or not, that they they tend to, well, one, they tend to slouch over everything. Right? Slouching is different, yes. Right? They tend to slouch so they get really close and or else they'll put their head down on their desk and they're like right beside their pencil as they're writing. Right. I'm not saying my child does it all. I, I see that a lot. Yeah, and these would be uh, things to look at in terms of patterns of behavior, certainly to teach children good patterns of uh, not slouching Mm -hmm. and posture and better ways of writing, etc. But the idea of it's going to hurt your eyes or damage your eyes is not correct, unless you're so close to the pencil that you stick the pencil in your eye. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That will damage your eye. That will damage the eye. Yes. Move on to number two. Myth you, number two. Myth? Medical myth number two. Medical myth number two, but we're busting myths. We're breaking okay. them out. So they're myth takes. Myth takes. Maybe. If you handle frogs or toads, you'll get warts. You've certainly heard that, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Not true. The warts are caused by a virus called the human papillomavirus, the HPV virus. Lots mm-hmm. of talk about that with vaccinations now and cervical cancers and cancers in the mouth and throat. The papillomavirus, mm-hmm. uh, that's how warts are spread, uh, and it's usually through human contact. So in this case, you can handle frogs and toads without worrying about warts. And just for certain people... If you're looking for a prince, you can still kiss a frog. <laughs> you won't get warts on your lips. You won't get warts on your lips. Can't guarantee that you'll get a prince. Then forget but, it. Forget <laughs> it. All right. Any, okay. Any thoughts? 
Um, uh, no, but isn't, uh, with frogs, is it the same as turtles where there's the issue with, is it salmonella? There, uh, I don't think frogs have salmonella like turtles, but certainly there are certain frogs that are poisonous in different (laughs) parts of the world. And some of them are, uh, not fun to touch, but you're not going to get warts from them. Okay, good. All right. All right. Number three, the third myth. It's dangerous to go swimming right after eating. You've heard that, right? Yes. Right. Well, I don't know if it's uh, dangerous. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it's not. <laughs> that's, that's what we're busting right now. Uh, it's certainly, in my opinion, it's never a good idea to eat and then exercise of any kind. I always think that once food is in your stomach, you should allow the blood vessels and the digestion to work specifically on that until it gets uh, through the stomach and absorbed into the, the body. So I always recommend uh, waiting before. A lot of people talk about, oh, right after you eat, you should go for a nice long walk. Uh, I always think it's a good idea to wait a little while. But the idea is that you can actually go swimming right after eating and you can exercise in other ways right after eating. In fact, we look at people that are long-distance swimmers that swim, you know, across from Cuba to Florida, across the English Channel, a number of these places. These people have to take nutrition while they're swimming. Oh. Right? Do they? I don't know. Yeah. Well, if you're if you're swimming for two or three days or 60 hours or more than that, you need nutrition. You're burning up a lot of energy. Right. So you need it. So it doesn't, it won't cause abdominal problems, but, you know, it's still not a good idea. But mm-hmm. if you do go in the water afterwards, uh, you can do that. Again, I think it's one of those things where you want your kids, okay, s- don't go swimming right after eating. Sit and relax for a while. Yes, yes. Mm. Number sense. four. Do not dive. Do not <laughs> dive. Yeah, it could be messy in the pool. It could be very messy. Right. For me, it's more about that. It's like, yeah. you know, you're kind of like working everything up and a little... Yeah, especially if you have to clean it up. Oh, there's a fourth one? My goodness, how many Mythbusters do we have? I have, I have millions of them today. Oh, well. No, we have to get on with it. <laughs> I'm very excited about all these arteries. Uh, yeah, you should be. Uh, two more. If you go outside in cold weather with wet hair, what's going to happen? You're going to catch a cold or not? No, it depends on how cold it is. It might freeze. <laughs> I get icicles. The answer is... Uh, going outside in cold weather with wet hair does not cause you to catch a cold. Colds are caused by viruses, and they spread by contact, you know, by sneezing or touching hands or coughing or kissing, things like that. Uh, however, the immune system could be a little affected when you're out in the cold. It could drop your immune system, so if you are in contact with a virus, that may happen. Mm. The reason, or one of the reasons that it's believed that it seems like it's the cold weather, that we always blame it on the cold weather, is actually because it's so cold, most people stay indoors a lot more in closed uh, quarters with lots of family around, and certainly one of the people may have a virus, and that's really where it comes from. Mm. Interesting. Yep. Final one. Final myth for today. And I think I I wanted to start with some simple ones because I didn't know how I would react to them. Uh, But as we go uh, through inside the doctor's bag, uh, I'll start looking at more deeply into some serious myths. These are kind of fun ones as an introduction. This one is is one that I don't worry about too much because no one ever gets it right. (laughs) 
So because they never get it right, it's best to starve a fever and feed a cold. You ever heard oh, that? Oh, I've heard that, yes. So, so pe- the reason not to worry too much about this is because people never remember whether you feed a cold or a fever or starve a cold or a fever. <laughs> so technically, probably because you start talking about it and you can't figure it out, you don't do anything with it anyway. Right. But the idea is that it is not best to starve a fever or to feed a cold. Fevers won't come down if you starve them. In fact, it's important to continue to eat and take in nutrition when you have a fever or a cold, mm-hmm. and you could have both. Uh, it's important to take in nutrition uh, to help in the healing process. The cells that are trying to heal need energy, and they get it through nutrition. But you don't have to overeat. You can certainly eat a lot less. The most important thing here is to maintain hydration, mm-hmm. drinking a lot of fluids, because specifically a fever has a tendency to... Uh, cause uh, loss of fluid. So that's the important part. So that's it for myth takes or or something. (laughs) I I don't know yet. I'm counting on We're going to have to think about this. We will have to think about it. Maybe we'll have a a listener, viewer, audience participation contest. Yes, uh, a contest is good. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have a contest. Uh, The winner will get, uh, we'll send them uh, sleep sweet. We'll send them a CD of Sleep Sweet. Sounds great. I like these little myths. Yeah, so it'll be fun. And I think there's lots of them out there that uh, we could look at in the future. It was just an abnormal number of them. Abnormal number. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And we'll we'll get more deeply into that if it becomes interesting. Sounds good. So now we're moving on. Stroke. This, in emergency medicine, this is a true emergency. This really is an emergency. And uh, I'm going to start, even before explaining a stroke, I'm going to tell you some statistics, tell you why I think it's so important here. In the United States, it's the third leading cause of death. Over 140,000 people die each year from a stroke. And it is the leading cause cause of serious long-term disability in the United States. Each year, approximately 795,000 people have suffered from a stroke. Uh, And I'm just reading some statistics here that I think are important, and I always like to get accurate. About 600,000 of these people, uh, it's a first attack, and about 185,000 of them, it's a recurrent attack. So that's one of the issues with strokes. You can get a first stroke, and once you get a stroke, uh, you're more susceptible to multiple strokes after that. Wow. Uh, worldwide statistic, according to the World Health Organization, 15 million people suffer from a stroke each year. About 5 million of them die. 5 million are permanently disabled. So that's pretty important. Now, I've got an interesting philosophical question for you. Um, in the United States, every 40 seconds, someone has a stroke. Every 40 seconds. Oh, my gosh. In Canada, <clears throat> every seven minutes, someone has a stroke. So it's part a small of my population. Well, it's, I don't know. <laughs> the, that may be part of it. But I what mean, I was really, when you think of the population of Canada compared to the U.S., it's... Oranges and apples. So 
So, you know, it's like, what do they say? The population of Canada is actually less than the population of Southern California. Wow. Yeah, so it's a big area, but uh, the uh, communities are populated closely, mm-hmm. pretty spread out. So here's the question I have for you. Seven minutes in Canada, 40 seconds in the United States. If you're a Canadian and you move to, Can- to the United <laughs> States, do you, are you a Canadian no matter where you are? Or do you suddenly get into the 40-second uh, concept? Or... Should everybody in the United States that's concerned about a stroke move to Canada? (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) You don't think we should move to Canada? Uh, I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. All right, but you're okay. Your diet, your lifestyle, your habits—they're going to be the same wherever you go. You know, your eating habits. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Well, we're gonna we're going to be talking cleaner? about that. What's that? The water might be cleaner. Yeah, the beef they... might be cleaner and more straightforward, not as uh, you know, uh, hormoned and etc. So that might all make a difference. Who knows? That's true. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of parts to that, and there's genetics, and we're going to be talking about some of the risk factors in a little while. Let's talk about the history of a stroke. They knew about strokes almost 2,500 years ago, uh, back in Mesopotamia and Persia. And Hippocrates, who I always like to look at and think about, and we have a slide of Hippocrates, father of medicine, modern, not modern medicine, but medicine, along with Asclepius, the god of medicine. Uh, Hippocrates, actually around 450 B.C., E., uh, was one of the first to notice, he called it, uh, it was called apoplexy at that point. And it was a Greek term, and it meant something like being struck down with violence. And what he was noticing is that people that had this apoplexy were suddenly struck with, uh, they couldn't move a side of their body, they were paralyzed. Uh, and some of them couldn't speak, depending on where it was. So even back 2,500 years ago, they knew that there were certain things about it. In the 1600s, there was a gentleman from Switzerland, uh, Johann Webfer, who started doing necropsies and uh, doing uh, post-mortem dissections. And he noticed that there was hemorrhage in some brains of people that had this apoplexy. And he was actually the first one to notice that there were two main arteries, and we have a slide on that, two main arteries that uh, feed the brain. And these are important. So when you look at that slide, uh, you can see over on the left, there's uh, information, and you see the bottom left, there's something called the common carotid artery, and that shows the artery, uh, the big artery that goes up to the brain from around the heart area. And the carotid artery, of course, there's one on each side, the left and right carotid arteries. And they go up and they supply usually the anterior part of the brain or the front of the brain and the middle of the brain. And then if you look up a little just above the common carotid artery, you'll see where it says the vertebral artery. And that looks like an artery that's going between uh, and in, within inside the vertebral column, uh, the spinal column. And the vertebral arteries, of course, again, left and right, that goes and feeds the 
posterior or back aspects of the brain in the middle, and they connect in the middle somewhere. So between these two major arteries, that's where we get our brain supply, and it was found out in the 1600s that that the uh, arteries are probably probably the cause of it. The term uh, cerebrovascular accident, which is what we always called it in medical school and in my training and in emergency medicine when we thought someone had a stroke, we called it a CVA. So cerebro is the brain, vascular is obviously the blood vessel, and the accident is the process. And that was devised in 1927. We started changing the terms a little bit. Now it's called a brain attack. In 1990, mm. it was changed to a brain attack. And moving on in the process, neuroimaging. When we look at angiograms, and we have a, a slide of an angiogram where you could see it almost looks like an X-ray, as you say, of the blood vessels, where we inject a dye and then take uh, X-rays, this was uh, introduced in 1927, and the neuroimaging techniques have given us great information and insight into the causes of heart attack, uh, excuse me, of strokes, cerebrovascular attacks, and uh, consequently the potential way the physiology and pathophysiology happen, and then the way uh, we may be able to help people with a stroke through medicine and surgery. CT scans, you've heard of CT scans, right? Yes. CAT scan. Mm -hmm. They came on in about 1972. So coming up to the modern, now that we've looked at statistics and we've looked at a little bit of the history, let's get a definition of the stroke. What do you, when you uh, think about a stroke, what do you think that that is for you, Christina? Um, well, I guess for me it's, it's uh, an a clot in the brain. Mm -hmm. You know, that's my my basic analogy, which is the blood vessel. And everything goes, ding, it stops from there. Because <laughs> well, there's no blood flowing that part of the brain anymore. That's exactly correct uh, to a degree. It is, let me tell you what the World Health Organization calls it. In mm -hmm. the 1970s, they defined it as a neurological deficit of a cerebrovascular cause that persists beyond 24 hours and is potentially, or it's interrupted by death within 24 hours. Mm. Now, we also have something called the transient ischemic attack, TIA. Have you ever heard that? No. That's where we started seeing people would show up in the emergency department and they would have all the symptoms of a stroke, which we'll get into the weakness and the paralysis and the loss of speech potentially and balance, a number of other possibilities. And we would start thinking it was a stroke. But as they were in the emergency department, it, uh, they started getting better. All the symptoms started going away. So we would call that a transient ischemic attack. Uh, they're changing the name of that now, but uh, it's still about the same thing. We've, we've also changed the name to cerebrovascular insult. So instead of calling this cerebrovascular insult, it's now, I mean, attack, it's now called a cerebrovascular insult or a CVI instead of a CVA. Or we even call it just a brain attack. <laughs> so, so why do they keep changing the names when it's basically the same thing? 
Well, they're, they're understanding, as I said, when we talked about the neuroimaging and the pathophysiology, and remember I keep saying that this is the, this is the time of the central nervous system where we're learning more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, as we're learning more, we feel that the, the way it was called uh, didn't really answer the pathophysiology. So they're trying to change the name. Instead of it being uh, apoplexy, for example, uh, where someone's struck, it became an accident. And it's not really an accident that this happens most of the time. You know, there could be an accident, a head injury or something. But in many cases, uh, it's due to lifestyles, things that you've talked about before, you know, diet and, and genetics and other things. Uh, so it's not necessarily accident at that time. So they wanted to be more clear. And I think it's partly just the idea of as we learn more, we want to be more direct and correct in our naming of things. So it's the brain attack. And we don't always know the cause initially until we can figure that out through uh, diagnosis. Mm. So, But basically, it is poor blood flow to the brain, and it results in cell death. So blood flow, if we look at this picture of an artery right now, you can see uh, the different layers of an artery. But the inside of the artery, that little channel in there, is what's bringing blood supply to all the brain cells. And it's this blood supply that's the most important. And there could be a problem within that little area. If you remember in one of the other inside the doctor's bag, we talked about measurements inside the body. People could go back and look at that. We're We're not talking about large areas here of giant inches of of space we're talking about millimeters and sometimes micromillimeters maybe a centimeter in some of the bigger arteries but by the time an artery like the common carotid goes or the vertebral artery those two arteries that we looked at in the former slide by the time those get up into the actual brain cells area they're very 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 small and wherever these uh, arteries are, if that artery gets disrupted, if the flow gets disrupted, then whatever is being fed by that artery is going to lose its ability. And then timing is the important factor. If it's just for a second or two, uh, that's okay. The brain can recover. But after about 60 to 90 seconds, a number of things start happening. Inflammatory processes start happening. Chemicals start being poured in there in hopes of saving it, but it also has the potential to cause uh, cell death. And when that cell dies, whatever function that cell was doing in the brain, if it was a function of, say, vision, you lose vision. If it was a function of moving your left fifth finger, then you won't be able to move that finger. If it's a, if it's a area where speech occurs, it's you lose that. So it's all about getting those cells to have the nourishment through the arteries and being fed. So what we found, you mentioned earlier uh, that in your mind a stroke is a blockage. There are actually two main types of strokes that we really know about. And the first one is called the ischemic stroke. I-S-C-H-E-M-I-C. And we have a slide of this. And the ischemic stroke 
is due to a lack of blood flow, usually caused by a blockage. Mm-hmm. And, it because, and it can be caused by an atheromatous plaque, be caused by calcium, it could be caused by a foreign object that might have loosened somewhere in the body. It can be caused by fat cells, a number of things. So when you see uh, this slide with the brain, you see a, a small area taken out where it's the artery where it bifurcates or a fork in the road, and you can see a little clot in there. Mm-hmm. If blood can't get past that, all of the cells beyond that that are fed by that uh, go down. Hmm. So, so, so st- these blockages, you, you gave a list of what it could be. It could be calcium deposits. It could be plaque. Right. What else could it be? It could be fat globules. It could be fat if somebody... Globules. Yes, little pieces of fat that get into the bloodstream. It could be uh, from another area, like an embolus. We talk about that. People get blood clots in their leg. Mm, Yes. It can make its way all the way up to the heart and then to the lungs or to the brain. So now that takes me to a question about blood thinners. Mm -hmm. Because I know, you know, as uh, many people, I know many people who are on blood thinners. Correct. Because they're trying to keep from heart attack, and strokes. But if it's uh, calcium debris or a fat molecule or globule, Mm -hmm. how how can that be prevented? Well, we can't always prevent them. We can do a number of things, and we're going to talk about prevention uh, in a little while. But it's it's about there are certain things that can be prevented – uh, or cannot be prevented, like your gender or your age, mm-hmm. et cetera. But there are certain things in lifestyle that we can talk about that will uh, potentially prevent these things. For for example, obesity, or if you uh, lower, if you have diabetes, uh, you can improve things because diabetes affects blood vessels. So it isn't always. Uh, a something in there. Sometimes it can be just so much narrowing, a buildup of so much plaque. You know, just like in plumbing, if the if there's too much hard water and the minerals start building up inside the diameter of the the pipe or the blood vessel. In this case, uh, the narrowing it gets more and more narrow, and less and less blood goes through. So many parts to this process. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and there are many things that we do in science to try and when we recognize that there's a problem. Sometimes in, we can do a surgical procedure where, for example, if we know there are clots in the leg that are coming up in, and coming through the veins, we put something in the, uh, one of the blood vessels, the inferior vena cava, which is a major blood vessel coming from the lower part of the body. We put something like an umbrella in there that opens up mm. so that when some of these little pieces and particles get there, the umbrella stops it. So there's lots of surgical things that we can do. And then there are medical things that we can do. And then there are lifestyle things that we can do. But uh, as I said, every 40 seconds, you know, while we're doing this talk, uh, a number of people are going to have a stroke. Wow. So we'll move on for a moment here. And we'll cover a lot of this as we move through it in different ways. But as I said before, there was two types of strokes that they uh, noticed. One was the ischemic type. And ischemia, by the way, has to do with the process of a cell dying. You have a normal cell, then you have a cell that has less oxygen, so it gets ischemic. Then it, has an, then it goes into an injury phase, 
and then it goes into an infarct. You've heard the term myocardial infarct, right? A heart attack. Well, infarct is cell death, but you can have, just like you have a myocardial infarct in the heart, you can have a cerebral infarct in the brain, and it's about cells that are dying. So the second type of stroke is a hemorrhagic type of stroke, which is due to bleeding. And yeah, so this is something else that we have to talk about. And there's a slide on this too. We have an angiogram Mm -hmm. uh, that shows a whole area where a blood vessel bursts and it could be due to hypertension. It could be due to an aneurysm. It could be due to a a fistula. Many different things can cause the uh, bursting of the blood vessel. But if the blood vessel bursts, blood starts coming out into the area of the brain and it starts occupying the space that normally the cells are occupied in. And the more bleeding, the more space occupying, the more cells get damaged because, number one, they're not getting the blood into the cells through the blood vessel. So it's it's being lost there, but also the actual... Uh, space and amount of fluid that comes out as blood starts pushing parts of the brain and as parts of the brain get pushed around remember on the outside there's a skull it's pretty hard coconut so it can't just expand sometimes (laughs) you know if you hurt your arm and you get something like a hematoma you've heard the term hematoma right yes where bleeding comes but you have skin that's kind of loose sometimes, so the hematoma can get very big mm-hmm. and it can keep expanding, whereas in the brain, it only has a certain amount of area it can go. Right. Wow. So this is pretty serious. Mm-hmm. And for all of these things, we look at what the brain actually does. And the brain has a few programs. One program is a motor program. So when we talk about the ability of the brain to have a motor program, that means it's movement. You can blink your eyes, you can open your mouth, you can move a finger, you can walk, you could stand up. All of those things are motor programs, right? That makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing a brain has within its capabilities are sensory programs. Sensory means a sense of smell, a sense of taste, a sense of touch, even things like a sense of time or a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. These are all part of sensory apparatus or apparati. And then there's consciousness, you know, the ability to organize your thoughts, have normal conversations, understand the difference between today and yesterday, uh, and to put things in order to when you're speaking and you suddenly are trying to um, um, uh, think of the right word. Mm-hmm. When people can't think of the right word, that's part of brain uh, function. So when the cells go down and go bad, whatever area it was, if, when, if it was an area of motor, if it was an area of sensory or consciousness, those things will show up as deficits at that point. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, again, we talk about if the symptoms last for less than an hour or two, then it's known as a transient attack. And if if someone has that TIA, that's what they call it, transient ischemic attack, they're even changing the name of that now. (laughs) Uh, Oh, my gosh. I know. But, you know, that's why we go to medical school. You don't have to worry too much about that. (laughs) 
But it's one of those things that then you're okay. But if you do have that transient ischemic attack, there's a lot of statistics now that prove that uh, your chances to have a stroke increase quite a bit. And that's when you have to see the doctor, and that's when they want, may want to start uh, doing preventive measures. Uh, it's really, this is an emergency. This is a true medical emergency. And the reason it's emergent, an emergency is obviously it's the brain and the central nervous system and the deficits anywhere from a deficit to death can occur. Uh, it's very important to realize that time is brain. So the more time from the moment that that little clot gets into that vessel to the time that you get to the operating room or you get on medications, uh, every second counts there. So it's very important uh, to understand that it is an emergency. And if someone is having a stroke, it's important to, this is not a case where you try to walk it off. You want to get into the hands of somebody that can take care of you very quickly making a diagnosis. So early recognition is very important, uh, and you're going to look for things like sudden onsets of, obviously, changes in motor, sensory, and consciousness, weakness, uh, numbness, parts of the body, face, arm, or leg, especially on one side, uh, trouble seeing it could be in the eye. We talked about that before. So if you're having vision problems, uh, dizziness, loss of balance, a severe headache, all of these things are potential problems. Now, every one of these things, Christina, and this is what makes uh, medicine and especially emergency medicine so interesting, is almost all of these can have multiple uh, reasons for it. You could have many of these symptoms, and it could be because your blood sugar is low and you're not really having a stroke. All of the symptoms, loss of balance, a little bit of a headache, confusion, uh, weakness, many things. There are, and that's the challenge in emergency medicine and in all of medicine. It's when somebody comes in, their first complaint is something. We have to make decisions very quickly. Uh, we take a history, we do a special neurological exam, and then we try and figure out what imaging studies we want nowadays to help us make the diagnosis. Because if it's each one of these is very important because they have different treatments. For example, you talked about the blood thinners, right? Yes. So if somebody had a blood clot and we got to them in time, there are now ways that we can put certain things into the, into the blood vessel, in the brain specifically, that will break up the clot. Hmm. Wow. Or we can put, you know, give a person blood thinners, right, so that they won't clot, right? That makes sense. Mm -hmm. But how about if, imagine this, how about if a person came in and we gave them a blood thinner and it turned out to be not the ischemic type of stroke, but the hemorrhagic type of stroke. Oh my! So God, now you have somebody that's bleeding and you're giving someone uh, medication to thin their blood so they won't clot. That's, that's death. That's, you know, you've just sentenced them to death wow. at that moment. So really important in making the diagnosis mm. and very quickly. Oh, yes. Oh, that's so what are, totally opposite. <laughs> right? Ooh, so what are things... So the two that, different types of strokes, it's... it's Completely different uh, treatments, and that's not just the emergency treatment, that's long-term treatments also. Right. 
uh, everything is different. And you have to be careful. Let's say because let's say you have somebody with an ischemic stroke, so they have a clot somewhere or an obstruction, and we put them, or they have atrial fibrillation, something like that, uh, an abnormal heartbeat, which mm. can cause uh, potential emboli or blood clots being thrown up to the heart, from the heart to the brain. Uh, let's say we put them on a blood thinner, and it's really helping them. But now they fall and hit their head, and they are on a blood thinner. Right. Now they may get a hemorrhagic stroke while we're trying to prevent the ischemic stroke. Right. Oh. No. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's really complex. We're learning a lot more nowadays. There's lots of studies going on about things. How can we prevent a stroke? And preventing strokes, as we said, every 40 seconds in the United States, somebody's having a problem. And if somebody dies from a stroke, that's one level of a problem. But in many cases, as we looked at the statistics before, people don't die. They have a disability. And that disability becomes a health burden, both on the person, on their family and friends, and on the hospital, on health systems, uh, Everyone gets affected by someone with a stroke. So we're always looking at ways to prevent a stroke. And we're finding out that primary prevention is not as effective as secondary prevention. What do I mean by that? In other words, remember I said someone can have a stroke, and once they have one, they can have more strokes? Yes. So if they having the first stroke, primary prevention, there's not a lot of things that we can do, although there are some things that... Uh, can be done, but they're somewhat less effective than once someone has had a stroke and now we're trying to prevent them from the second stroke. You know, we talk about people getting aspirin and blood thinners, et cetera, and screening tests for carotid artery stenosis or narrowing. A lot of these things are not proving to be uh, that important to do just prophylactically if you're a healthy person. Mm -hmm. But once you're diagnosed with a problem, then you look at other possibilities. So certainly there's lifestyle risk factors, and we could look at that. And again, the lifestyle risk factors are the the six categories that I always talk about. Mm -hmm. You know, diet and nutrition is one. And in fact, I just uh, was at a conference, and I've been reading articles in nutrition. If you change your diet, to a, a healthier diet, more organic, more green leafy vegetables, less uh, processed food, less red meat. Listen to this. The potential for decreasing the risk of having a stroke is by 50%. Just wow. with nutrition. 50% with nutrition. That's important. I love it. Yeah. Thank you uh, for sharing that, Glenn, because it's so, you know, sometimes people say to me, Oh no, it's it's too late now. I've you know I've spent half my life doing this, and I'm not going to change it now because what is it really going to change? But now you're telling me that it will change. The chances are fifty percent. That's a huge, huge. And and when you think about what we're willing to do just with medicine, we're willing to spend hundreds of dollars and thousands of dollars on tests, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, to diagnose and to treat and have surgeries yes. when all you have to do is uh, look at your nutrition and develop a better diet. And certainly there are diets out there that are helpful, but yes. 50% I think is really cool. Oh my gosh. Just that on nutrition alone. Alone. Love it. Wow. 
Wow, physical activity, great. obviously. Yeah. Yes. Physical activity, increasing it. Uh, stop tobacco use and smoking, alcohol use. You know, we talk about, remember, in one of our other uh, programs inside the doctor's bag where we talked about something may be good for one thing but not good for another. You know, mm-hmm. red wine, great for the heart, but alcohol may not be great for the brain. So mm-hmm. you've got to look mm-hmm. at that. Uh, certainly stress reduction and good sleep. There are some serious medical risk factors that need to be addressed. High blood pressure, especially for the hemorrhagic type stroke, Mm -hmm. is one of the most important. So it's very important to be working with your doctor and do everything you can to keep your blood pressure low. Because if you imagine, you saw that slide before of the exploding little artery. Mm -hmm. Well, if that blood pressure is high, the wall of that little artery can only take so much pressure before it explodes. So you may need to be on blood pressure medication. Uh, and that has to be watched very carefully. Don't take it lightly. Mm-hmm. Isn't that In interesting? Words, because I guess growing up with with uh, you know my father having heart attacks and things like that, every time people talk about blood pressure medication, it goes towards the heart, like not necessarily the stroke, but a heart attack. That's why we're on magical medical. There tour. you go. <laughs> We're changing the world, Christina. Man, we are this, teaching the peoples, our peeps. I, I don't know which stroke is uh, better, the hemorrhagic or the other one, <laughs> the clot. <coughs> well, it's like not, the hemorrhagic is like, oh my, I'm looking at this picture going, oh, that doesn't look very good. You know, as you said, this this coconut is pretty hard shelled out here, right. and where's the blood going to go? You know, when you watch ER, the, the little episodes of ER where they have to drill into someone's head to release the pressure, it's like, oh, my gosh. Yep. Ooh. And, you know, at certain times, if you drill into the head because you think it's a hemorrhagic and it turns out to be the other, lots of interesting processes in the emergency department. So, That's why it's such so a fantastic before field. They, before they diagnose. Mm-hmm. Do they put individuals into the, like, do a CAT scan right away? Is there enough time to do that? or? Well, it's always the most important thing is to take a history and a physical and do that first. Before you do anything else, technically you should be able to make a pretty good diagnosis that something's wrong. And then you make the decision to get the CAT scan right after that. Most likely you're going to get a CAT scan. So when you see someone that comes into the emergency department, the nurses are pretty sharp. They already kind of have figured out that maybe it's a stroke. So we will immediately, even before I see the patient, they may notify the radiology department that an emergency CAT scan is going to be necessary. So start setting up for it. Oh, I see. And then uh, you know, and again, because how can you tell? As you said, you drill in the head, but it's the other stroke. It's like, oh. Well, there are things that we've learned. I can't give you everything because I don't want everyone practicing medicine uh, and knowing all our little secrets. But there are certain there are certain things magical that lead- secrets. What's that? Magical secrets. Magical medical secrets. Yes. Yeah. That. There are certain things that give us hints, but we're not always correct, you know, and especially if someone's already had a stroke and they've already got a deficit. So they're already weak on their right side, for example, and then they come in with a second stroke. You know, we could this be a hemorrhagic stroke or is it another embolic stroke or something? It's it's very difficult to always figure it out, but that's that's the beauty in medicine today. And sometimes most of the time we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. 
Atrial fibrillation is another uh, medical risk factor. That's an abnormal beating of the heart. Uh, and because of that, if there's heart disease and you have valve disease, sometimes little uh, clots can form on the valves. And with the heart beating irregularly, one could break off, get into that carotid artery or vertebral artery and go up into the head. And wherever it goes, it's going to cause a problem. High cholesterol, uh, it's actually not always the cholesterol. There are other parts of the cholesterol products that seem to be an issue. But if you do have really, really high cholesterol, it's something important. And that goes along with obesity, things like that. Diabetes mellitus, uh, very important to make sure you have control of that because that uh, works on the small blood vessels everywhere in the body, including the brain. Circulation problems, carotid artery disease, all of these things can cause the problems. So, uh, and we also talked about in terms of the uh, preventive things, we talked with uh, Dominique D'Angostino, the neuroscientist. He talked about the ketotic diet, where they're doing a lot of studies with the ketotic diet, mm-hmm. uh, which may help in strokes and post-stroke victims. When we talked with uh, Dr. Tessman uh, about hyperbaric oxygen, Yes. Uh, that was another thing that they look at. It doesn't appear to be helpful in the stroke itself or prevention of the stroke, but after someone has a stroke, there may be some things that can be done for it. So what I want to really leave you with, I'm not trying to teach you uh, how to treat a stroke, but what I think mm-hmm. is the important lesson here is if you remember many years ago, we started looking at um, the heart and heart attacks and we put on this massive public outcry to teach people CPR and to recognize <laughs> programs, recognize when someone's having a heart attack and to do certain things, right? And we saw statistically that were amazing uh, results of people were living longer and doing better because more people were recognizing a uh, potential heart attack and getting them to the hospital sooner. Well, I think the same, the same thing has to happen with the stroke. We need to recognize the stroke more quickly, and everyone can recognize certain possibilities so they can move quickly. So there's a, a mnemonic that helps people, and that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, so when somebody has a, a stroke out on the street or a family member, you're at a dinner table with family or friends, and someone is acting abnormal, you have to think fast, right? Mm-hmm. Because we already talked about time is brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So think of the word fast, F-A-S-T. Yes. So this is what we want to talk about today, and this will be the go-away lesson. First is F, and think of the face. So the first thing you do is ask a person to smile, and that's a motor function, right? Right. First of all, it's, it's also a sensory function because they have to hear you and understand you. When you say, please smile, but if the person is deaf and they can't see, they're not going to be able to understand you. So assuming they can understand you, have them smile. If you notice that the smile goes up and one side is drooping or weak, that's an abnormality. And that gives you an indication there might be a motor problem. Mm -hmm. And it's in a blood vessel where the facial motor nerves and arteries are working, right? So you got that? So the first thing is ask a person to smile. If they can't smile or you see one side of their face drooping, that's an indication. 
What's the second letter, Christina? A. A. Arms. Have a person raise their arms, both of their arms over their head, or you raise their arms and have them and tell them to keep them up there. You will notice that if someone's having a stroke, there's a possibility that their good arm will stay up, but their other arm will start to drift down. If you see that, indication number two. Number three. S. S. Speech. Ask the ask the person to talk to you. You know, you're asking, how do you feel? Or repeat this sentence for me. How are you today? And if they can say, how are you today? Uh, then you know they're okay there. But if, if they look at you with a puzzled look and they don't know what you said, that's an indication. But if, they, if they're trying to say it, and instead of saying, how are you today, they say the weather in New Mexico is, is cloudy. There's confusion. Or if they go, mm-hmm. how are you the So it's slurred or it's not clear. That's the next thing. That's a very important, I want to mention this, uh, as you're doing this testing on someone, everybody has similarities, but everybody is also unique. So when you're doing this kind of testing on someone, you have to recognize the similarities and you have to recognize the uniqueness. So if you see someone on the street that uh, they can't smile, they can't lift their arm and they can't speak well, and you're starting to think, what are you thinking at that point? They're possibly having a stroke, right? But it might be that they had already had the stroke, and these are deficits that have been going on for five years. Mm. None, nothing new has changed, and all they did was faint because they heard some bad news. Mm. So you have to be careful and understand if you have someone that you know that has had this weakness for years, then, then you don't react as similarly. But it's important. If you don't have any information, then you just go with it. The face, the arm, the speech. And the last one is what? T, time. 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 So the first thing is because time is brain, the second you have diagnosed that they can't smile, they can't lift their arms, and they can't speak well, call 911 immediately. The other part of time for me is to test their orientation. Do they know what day it is? Do they know where they are? Do they know who the president is? These are things that are important. But again, you have to take the uniqueness of an individual. If someone just came out of a cave for 100 days, they may not know what day it is or who the president is or something like that. So you've got to put it in perspective. And that's basically it for today. Fast. Fast. I like that. Yeah. So what's our summary of the day? We talked about the bill. SB 128, get on it, folks. Uh, Call your assembly person. We've busted a few myths or made up for some myth takes. (laughs) (laughs) And we've talked about a little bit of the stroke, you know, what it is, the history of it, statistics, what can cause it, prevention, number of things right now, and a mechanism, the FAST mechanism. So tell me the FAST again, just to make sure that, because I know if you have it, others will have it. Of course, I've written it down. Of course. And you'll keep it in <laughs> your wallet? Of course. Oh, my goodness. Fast. Um, F for the face. Ask the person to smile. See if there's any weakness in that area. A. Um, uh, a. What was, what was the acronym for A? Arms. Sorry, I didn't write down arms. Arms. Have the person raise their arms or raise it for them and see if they can keep it up there. 
S is for speech, have the person repeat a sentence or have a conversation with them, making sure their, their uh, sense memory or their motor skills um, are, are in, in balance. Mm-hmm. T is for time. That is time equals brain, which is critical. And so if there's any issues with them, um, uh, with any of the above or uh, testing the orientation of time and date, Etc. Um, if they don't remember where they are, call nine one one ASAP. There you go, fast. Yes, fast. Now you can while you're w- and after you've done this very quickly and you've got the ambulance on the way, you can go back and do more things. For example, in the face, you can test other things. Have them close their eyes. Have them look up, down, to the sides. Uh, a number of different things that they could do. Grimace, lift lift the muscles in their forehead. So you could do more testing. With the arms, uh, you can look at legs while they're lying down there. Have them lift the leg up. If you see that everything is on one side, that's giving you another indication. Have them move their fingers. Have them do a number of things. You don't have to do any of this, but just for your own curiosity. And then speech, you can, that will pre- be pretty much uh, obvious at that time. They'll either be slurring, they'll be clear, they won't be able to recognize words, or they'll be totally functional. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> and there you go. So fast. Think fast. Think fast. Right. And go through that and teach that to everybody you know. I think we want to take people in our society because we know this is a health issue. We just talked about that as what a burden it is. And there's a possibility that if recognized within a few hours, we have a limited amount of time that we can do certain things. If somebody shows up in the emergency department after, say, a three-hour period, and they had that ischemic stroke, we can't give them the medications anymore that might have broken up the stroke, the clot. Wow. So that's a very important fact to remember. That's why time is brain. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the sooner you move, the sooner people become more aware of strokes. And I guess what you can do is technically every 40 seconds start looking around at people (laughs) dropping. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Or move to Canada and then you have seven minutes. Yeah, so that's just too much. Wonderful. This has been a great show, Dr. Woolman. Wow. Lots uh, lots for people to think about, but I like the way you streamlined it. Thank you so much. Fast. You're welcome. I have one quick health tip and then we'll go. Okay. Uh, this is sort of uh, a myth also, and I'll use it as a health tip today. <clears throat> People think it's perfectly safe to uh, lick a wound. You know, you see people that immediately they cut themselves, they put their mouth to the, to the wound. Yes. My health tip, don't lick a wound. <laughs> There's lots of bacteria in the mouth, and that, you're just introducing bacteria into an open lesion. That's my health tip for today. <laughs> That's good. Bye, everybody. In which I always do that. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you for joining us today for our magical medical tour. We hope you enjoyed Inside the Doctor's Bag. I want to thank all my teachers and healers uh, for helping me on my journey. And I look forward to meeting again with you, Christina, in another adventure in, a, in the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, thank you, Christina, Yoga Hub, Segovia, everyone else. And to all our viewers, wishing you all optimal health.
<laughs> thank you, Doc Woolman. Another fantastic show. And of course, we'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can connect with Dr. Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where I encourage you to learn about his metaphor, Square Breath. Um, now you can watch or listen to our shows, uh, podcasts. It would be wonderful when you do if you could like us or pass along our link to others who you feel will benefit from our shows. And of course, we are always, always grateful for your feedback, suggestions, comments, questions, our, our guests and Dr. Woolman and us. We love it when you ask questions. Um, and, uh, you know, you can do it on the screen. Um, and submit it, or you can give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, namaste. <laughs>